Tomorrow, on Tuesday, September 12th, for the first time ever, all 15 judges of the Supreme Court of Israel will hear arguments on what may be the most important legal matter since the state was founded. The petition that will be heard was filed on July 24th within minutes of the Knesset's passage of an amendment to the basic law on the judiciary. Since then, additional parties have joined in this action, which is opposed, of course, by the coalition government. There are many firsts in this excruciating, never-ending constitutional showdown in Israel, which is just getting going. The supreme irony, of course, is that this constitutional crisis rages in a country that lacks a constitution. Joining us to make sense of it all is Professor Yaniv Rosnai, a constitutional law expert and vice dean of the law school at Reichman University. He's brilliant and helps to clarify the opaque. I'm Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel, former lawyer for 25 years, and today a hardcore Tel Avivian living in the fabulous state of Tel Aviv. Stay with us as we do our best to make order out of chaos. To many Israelis, myself included, the judicial reform proposals, if implemented as presented, absolutely threaten liberal democracy. With the help of Professor Yaniv Rosnai, state of Tel Aviv will, for the next hour more or less, set out the facts, the issues, the arguments, and the conclusions as if we were presenting to a judge in a court of law. For those who do not have a litigation background, sadly I do. Distilling complexity to a clear conclusion is always the goal. Make your position so compelling that the judge has no choice, really, but to agree with you. Today, listeners, you are the judge. I would love to hear from you at the end if you see this constitutional issue as a clear case of a government undermining, very deliberately, the principles of liberal democracy. I'm just going to get into a wee bit of factual background that will be very helpful as we go through the issues. Immediately upon forming the government coalition, Minister of Justice Yuriv Levin announced that he would present a complete draft of legislation to reform the judicial system. Many on the extreme right in Israel have believed for decades that the court has arrogated to itself excessive power in effect, usurping the will of the people as reflected in the legislature, the Knesset. That was January. Then, in February, the government's fury was further stoked. Aryeh Derry, leader of the ultra-Orthodox Shah's party and a member of the coalition, had negotiated with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that he would be appointed Minister of Health and Interior, two very senior, powerful portfolios. This appointment was challenged, and the Supreme Court held that it was extremely unreasonable and must be overturned. The hearing was in February. The basis for so finding was not partisan, but legal and ethical. Derry is a recidivist criminal. He has been convicted and done time for crimes of moral turpitude. In February 2022, he had been charged again with fraud and tax evasion-related crimes, and he pleaded guilty in the Jerusalem District Court. He also told the court at that time 
that he was retiring from public life and would never again hold public office. On that basis, in February 2022, the court granted Derry leniency in his sentencing. Almost immediately, Arya Derry was back in the ring, and he said, oops, I didn't mean I was retiring forever. He also said, oops, must have been a misunderstanding with the court. Others, including the Supreme Court judges who heard the petition objecting to Derry's appointment into two ministerial posts in February 2023, said that they thought that Derry might have been straight up lying to the court. And on that basis, they found that his appointment was extremely unreasonable. A man of such low character, they said, was not fit to hold such high public office. Throughout March, the government was possessed, saying they were going to jam through a law that would specifically punch back at the court. Things became so heated in the streets that even Arya Derry said that the matter should be deferred. At the end of March, Minister of Defense Yoav Gallant stated publicly that the reform agenda must be paused in order to allow time to calm the country and attempt some sort of resolution by negotiation. The next night, Gallant was fired by Benjamin Netanyahu. Sort of. The people of Israel took to the streets in what was a spontaneous and another unprecedented night of demonstrations. The bottom line is that in spite of months of effort, no agreement was reached. And in July, the issue boiled over again, culminating in the passage of the basic law on the judiciary being amended. On July 24th, again, we covered that period in podcasts and written pieces and invite you to peruse our archives. Moments after the law was passed on July 24th, a petition was filed with the Supreme Court of Israel to review this new law, which we refer to, for ease of reference, as the reasonableness law. We are fortunate to have Professor Yaniv Rosnai, who teaches constitutional law at Reichman University, to delve into the issues raised in this legal conflict and clarify the intense concern that is ricocheting wildly. Professor Rosnai is not only an academic expert, but has also rolled up his sleeves and been involved in multi-party discussions at the President's House in an effort to manage this foundational issue as it should be, through consensus and dialogue. So far, as he tells us, these initiatives have not been successful. But he, and millions of others, will not give up. Professor Yaniv Rosnai, good morning, good afternoon. Welcome to the state of Tel Aviv, and thank you so much for making time for us in this very busy week. Thank you, Vivian. Glad to be here. We have a lot to talk about today. It's the Thursday before the big hearing in the Israeli Supreme Court. Can you just set up from your perspective what this is about? What's the law about? Let's start with that. So just to understand, reasonableness is the standard in Israeli administrative law. The actions of the administration, the bureaucracy of the government, the ministers, the cabinet, or any other administrator for that matter. And the basic test is the following. Whether the person has considered all the proper considerations and have given them a proper weight. So basically, in a nutshell, it's a balancing formula. Show us what you have considered 
and whether you have considered all the proper considerations. And only from this brief explanation, you can understand perhaps why is it considered problematic for many people? Because for some critics in Israel, they say, why are you the court in a better situation to consider or analyze whether we have given the proper weight to certain considerations rather than others? Let me give you an example that people can perhaps relate to. So as you've mentioned, I live in Tel Aviv and imagine that my municipality would place all the garbage in my neighborhood just below my apartment because there's a big parking space there. So the municipality of Tel Aviv would say, functionally speaking, this is the best location, but they haven't considered the health, the environmental issues, the inconvenience to my neighbors in, the, in my building. I can go to the court and say, this decision is unreasonable because you haven't considered so-and-so considerations or given them proper weight. So this is basically the reasonableness tool. And what this law that we're talking about, which is actually not a law, it's a constitutional amendment. It is an amendment to basic law, the judiciary. What it basically means is that no court whatsoever can review the reasonableness of any decision by the cabinet or by the ministers whatsoever. So this is really an absolute, let's say, abolition of, the, of this doctrine in the sense that even if a minister makes an extreme unreasonable decision, the court cannot review it. That's basically the law that passed. Now, the government said, what do you want? We are not totally removing this doctrine in a way. We're simply limiting it because it still applies on the bureaucracy. So if a regulator within the Ministry of Communication would make it an unreasonable decision, the court can still intervene. But if the Minister of Communication would make the same decision, then the court cannot interfere with. Okay, so that's the reasonableness standard or law. Next, I asked Professor Rosnai to explain whether, by removing this tool from the court's kit, the Knesset really and truly defanged the court. Were there workarounds? As with everything, the answer is, as he puts it, yes and no. Yes and no. The, the idea is that apart from reasonableness, you have basically three or four standards that you can use in administrative review. So one is conflict of interest. If you're a minister making a decision, conflict of interest. If Netanyahu would now appoint himself as the minister of justice, obviously he's in a conflict of interest. Okay, so we don't need reasonableness. It's easy, it's easy to show. The second one is irrelevant consideration or, okay. or what we call it Hebrew Shrim, foreign considerations. You consider a consideration that is irrelevant for, for, for the matter. If, if a police officer pulls me over and he doesn't give me a ticket because I was his law professor, that's not a relevant consideration for him to consider. But the problem is that this is extremely difficult to prove because a minister or an administrator would never tell you the irrelevant consideration. They would always make up a certain consideration that seems prima facie reasonable. So, for example, when they wanted to build Teddy's soccer stadium in Jerusalem, the Minister of Interior Affairs, I don't remember who he was, but he was uh, from one of the religious parties, and he didn't want to because soccer, Shabbat, whatever. And he said that even though all the committees, the planning committees, they all gave the, the, their consent to the, their approval for the plan, he said no. 
And he said, I'm not willing to approve it until you show me a complete plan for the entire area. But this can take years. So then, obviously, the real justification underpinning was a religious one, a political party one. But he gave, he made up this justification. So the court couldn't use this as irrelevant consideration because he didn't say anything like that. They just think, okay, we understand this consideration of waiting for the entire plan. Right. But this is unreasonable because you didn't give the proper weight to the other considerations. So the, the other ones are very hard to prove. And the third one that is relevant is proportionality. Proportionality is only relevant to constitutional rights. So what do you do if you have decisions that either do not deal with rights or the deal with rights that are, they don't have a constitutional protection. If tomorrow the municipality builds a primary school right next to a factory that is environmentally a disaster, okay, we don't have a constitutional right to environment. We don't have a right to education explicitly in the basic laws. What, what exactly would be the base of it? Now, when this happened in the past, the court said this is unreasonable. You can't bring the kids and have them sit a whole day next to such a factory. So we need the reasonless doctrine in order to also protect rights. Okay, so we have now reviewed the reasonableness doctrine, which is at the heart of this crisis. And Professor Rosnai has explained several other legal doctrines that may be applied in place of reasonableness. But no single one is as comprehensive or effective in addressing scenarios of the kind that reach the court. But perhaps most importantly, Professor Rosnai says that if the reasonableness law is upheld as passed by the Knesset, it renders all of these doctrines irrelevant. Why? One more important thing why I think it's not enough. In order to enforce the other doctrines or the other standards, you need an independent legal advisor, an independent attorney general. But without the reasonableness, they can get rid of them and appoint their own yes-men. And once this occurs, what difference does it make that I have proportionality or conflict of interest if I don't have any serious legal advisor that would enforce it? So there are still tools to review various decisions by the government, but the reasonableness one was the main one. If you compare it to soccer or football, it's right. as if you take the whistle from the referee. That's the main okay. tool that the judge had. One more thing. The reasonableness law allows recidivist criminal Arya Derry to be appointed to cabinet, as was originally intended. Remember, his appointment is what started this whole surreal process. Are you concerned with what is going on in Israel? This is not just another crisis. This moment in history is considered by many to be the most critical and existential in Israel's 75-year history. State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited-time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually, one year for only $60. Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. We are a reader-supported enterprise. If you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Stateoftelaviv.com, all one word. Now, back to the podcast. 
The coalition government objects fiercely to the court's use of the reasonableness standard, but that's not all. They see the court's use of reasonableness as a symptom of a much broader problem, judicial activism in Israel. They say that, in effect, since the early 90s, Israel has been ruled by a rogue judiciary that overrules the legislature, a judicial coup, they like to call our system, and a favorite target that they love to demonize is former Supreme Court Chief Justice Aaron Barak. I asked Professor Rosnai to explain why the extreme right in Israel promotes this perspective. So first, the first move is the expanding of the reasonableness test. Until the mid-1980s, reasonableness was, as it is in UK, for example, common law, that of extreme unreasonableness. So a decision that no reasonable minister could ever take. Okay, so really far-fetched cases. Now, what happened in the mid-1980s is that Barack expanded that test to a test of balancing. And that is the balancing that I said. Show me that you've given proper weight, which obviously gives more discretion to the court and more power to the judge in, in the decision-making. With that said, I have to say that I think, to my mind, the court has used this power in a restrained manner, even though it has this power, it only intervened in extreme cases. But Barack turned it into a more balanced formula that it's not just extreme unreasonability that no reasonable minister can make this decision, but rather show us that you have given the proper weight to the different considerations. Okay. And that was seen by his detractors as judicial activism, an incursion into the legislative authority arena, correct? Yes, and this has to be taken together mm. with two other things, because it's not standing alone. One of them is the limiting of standing requirement. So if in the past, only if your rights were violated, you could go directly to the High Court of Justice. Now, every person on any matter can go directly to the High Court of Justice. Okay, so you need to take this together into consideration. And, th and the third element is... The, everything in Israel is just so I can go to the court and petition against issues of security, of religion, of foreign affairs. So there's the, no such thing as political question doctrine. So the issue of the expansion of the scope of standing, that was made unilaterally by the court? Yes. It, this is usually the case in common law countries. This is also what occurred in India. So that's one move in the mid-1980s. The second crucial move is the constitutional revolution. This is what many in the coalition government refer to as the beginning of a judicial dictatorship, okay? And they say that this is when Barack in particular, who they vilify, totally usurped democracy and substituted their own judgment for what legal standards in the country should be. That's a very coarse paraphrase of their position, but what I want you to give me, again, as tightly as you can, what happened in the early 90s in this so-called constitutional revolution? Okay, I'll try to do it in a, in a nutshell because it's, it's quite a long, a long uh, and complex issue. So in, in 1992, the Knesset enacts two basic laws on human rights. The importance of these two basic laws is that for the first time in the history of Israel, the Knesset limits its own legislative authority. So the Knesset says in these two basic laws, that there are certain things it cannot do. It cannot infringe upon rights unless 
the validation is proportionate, blah, blah, blah. All right. So this is very crucial. And until then, all basic laws dealt with institutions. So this was the first time the Knesset enacted as a basic law, human rights laws. Okay. Now, the problem was that the legal status of these two basic laws was unclear. It wasn't clear whether these basic laws have a constitutional status or they're just like ordinary law. And secondly, there was no provision authorizing the court to strike down ordinary laws that conflict with these two basic laws. Okay. The response to this basically arrived three years later in 1995 in the Mizrahi Banquet, in which the Supreme Court, Shamgar was president, and also Barak was president, because Shamgar was just retiring. So we had two presidents of the court. The court said basically the following points. One, the Knesset has constituent power. In other words, it has the power to create constitutional norms. The basic laws, because they are the product of the constituent power, they are constitutional laws, they have a constitutional status, they are superior accordingly to ordinary law. And finally, if there's an ordinary law that would violate or conflict with these basic laws, the court can strike them down, basically giving the court the power of judicial review. So it wasn't very clear what exactly the status of these basic laws are. And in 1995, November 1995, five days after the murder of Tzachabin, the High Court of Justice delivered this really fundamental judgment according to which these two basic laws have a constitutional status. And if there's an ordinary law of the Knesset that violates basic laws, this is then unconstitutional and the court can strike down such unconstitutional laws. So the court has given to itself in a way, by implication, the authority of judicial review and also elevating the basic laws to a constitutional status. And the intention, as I understand it, was always these basic laws will one day become the basis of a constitution. Was it 1958 the first basic laws were passed? So can you help me understand on what basis uh, the coalition takes the position that this was basically a judicial coup? Because there is no clear provision that allows the court to strike down ordinary laws. Although I think it's nonsense. Because if you read the basic laws, it is quite clear that there are not too many options but invalidating conflicting laws. One of the main provisions of the basic laws of basically human dignity is what we call the preservation clause or the saving clause, Shmirat Dinim. And this provision says that this basic law shall not affect the validity of all laws that were enacted prior to 1992, which basically means that this law can affect the validity of future laws that will be enacted. Right. So there is no other interpretation for that, apart from understanding that the court might strike down the validity of laws that would conflict with this. For the remaining time, we will focus on efforts made to date to resolve this crisis, why they have failed, and what they tell us about the intention of the coalition government. It began in February, when President Herzog reacted to the unprecedented protest and anger in society. Even though he has no formal power or authority to do so, he decided to act as a sort of mediator between interests and invited a broad range of groups to the President's house to consult and share with his office their preferred outcomes. He implored the country 
and power blocks to work towards consensus and avoid what he referred to as falling into the abyss. And he even, at times, used the term civil war. Professor Rosnai was among those invited to present at the President's House and shares with us his views of that process. Let's go back then to February and just please describe to me what was your role vis-a-vis Betanasee, President Herzog. Okay, President Herzog, once understanding that there's a severe crisis that needs him to be involved, try to see how he can get some kind of a consensus for a more balanced reform. And the reason that this was challenging, because politically speaking, the opposition refused to negotiate anything or to sit with the coalition as long as the legislative process is ongoing. So what Herzog was looking for is something extra political, out of the political sphere. And I'm talking about like narrow political parties and not political parties oriented. And then he invited to his house, to his office, different groups, research center, different organizations to combine the various proposals and see if he can found some kind of a middle ground that would be reasonable and balanced. And on the one hand, would provide the government with some kind of a major reform in the judicial system, but on the other hand, one that would actually strengthen Israeli democracy, actually advance us one step forward, rather than simply taking the Minister of Justice proposal and then let's see how we mitigate it. No, this was not the idea. It is, okay, what's bothering you? You don't want judicial activism? You don't want inter- judicial interference in policy making and appointing of ministers, etc. And what's the other side? What's you worried about? You don't have equality? that there is no basic law legislation, the judicial review is not anchored. Let's see if I can somehow build a reform that both sides will be satisfied in a way. So this was in the early months, and I was one of the persons who contributed to that debate. And eventually, the president published his own version of a constitutional reform, one that is balanced to his mind, and I, I, I agree with that. But this was rejected seven minutes after it was published by the coalition. All right. We have this report, and what are the basic points in the report that he makes public? What does he say? The first idea is that we cannot have a a reform that takes away or limits judicial power without having basic law legislation that once and for all regulates the manner by which basic laws are enacted or amended. That's extremely important. The second point is anchoring judicial review. In Israel, judicial review is only, let's say, implied from the basic laws on human rights. So there is no explicit provision that authorizes the court to conduct judicial review. So once and for all, we will regulate this issue after 30 years of the constitutional revolution and provide that the Supreme Court and only the Supreme Court has the authority to strike down laws. However, this exercise of judicial review will be limited so as to be sure that this exercise will be restrained so that only a majority of Supreme Court judges, I think we've said there are nine uh, minimum, and only when two-thirds of them consider a law to be unconstitutional, then you, the, the court will be able to strike it down. Okay. There was no override clause, so the president omitted the override clause, and the president provided that dignity will be amended in a manner that equality and free speech will be once and for all uh, provided in a basic law. Okay. Now they're just the, the result of the interpretation of the court. 
And the, the next point, he proposed a certain composition of the Judicial Selection Committee and that in a way elevates political power, but one that does not give the coalition control or complete dominance in the process. And the two final points, one of them is limiting in a way reasonability, right? but still allowing administrative supervision of the government in issues that do not deal with policy mm. or appointment of ministers and still supervision of ministers, something that is now deleted. And the final point is the legal advisory. There are some minor proposals there to the status of legal advisors. So this, Mitre, um, that was when he went on uh, TV to address the nation towards the end of March, correct? Yeah, I think March 15, I think. Okay. And within seven minutes, the opposition said, no, nah, we reject it. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And the basis upon which the coalition rejected these proposals, can you summarize that very succinctly? Yeah, the coalition rejected the proposal of the president because it still protected the democratic institutions. It made sure that the court remains independent, that the attorney general remains independent, that rights will be protected, and that judicial review will still be effective. And the coalition doesn't want all this. And in end of March, after the firing of the minister of defense, Gallant, there was a huge outrage in the public. There was like a sense of constitutional moment, hundreds of thousands in the street like that in one hour. And then Netanyahu, I think, also panicked. And he said, halting, stopping everything. And mm -hmm. let's sit with the opposition under the hospice of the president's house. Talk. So this was end of March. And then right. we had about two months and a half, up to three months of negotiations. The president's house. The pause. In order to make room for some calmness throughout the Passover holiday in April and allow things to cool down a bit, Prime Minister Netanyahu announced a pause. He said, sure, we'll go back to the president's house and talk. But in the same breath, both he and his key ministers, Itamar Ben-Gvir, Bezalel Smotrich, and Yariv Levine, were downright snide. Within moments of the pause being announced, they said, fine, we'll pause, but we won't compromise. And if there is no agreement, then we'll come back in May and ram through our judicial reform bill. We will not back down. This belligerence is not a negotiation tactic. They're not that subtle. They are doing what they have done since the election, saying, we won, we have a majority, and we'll do whatever we want. So. There was lots of talk through April, May, June, and even into early July, but not much happened until July, when the gloves really came off, and the coalition said, enough, we're moving forward. The build-up throughout the month to July 24, when the amendment to the basic law regarding the judiciary was passed, was intense. Professor Rosnai and I now fast forward to that heated month and day and what it means in practical terms for Israeli democracy. And we have a really hot, figuratively and metaphorically, month of July. And the coalition says we're going to pass this reasonableness law. And this is what we were discussing earlier in our conversation. And what this law is going to do is tell our listeners, what is this law going to do that the Knesset says they will pass and ultimately do pass? On July 24th. So it passed this law that removes very 
important authority of the court, of any court, to review the reasonless action of the executive. So basically, the executive, through the Knesset, is removing an important limitation on their powers that is imposed on their powers. So they're removing that limitation and weakening the court. One may say that this is changing the rules of the game during the game. And the draft of the law of the bill is enacted is, as I've mentioned earlier, quite an extreme and broad draft. But look how amazing it is, Vivian. It entered into the legislative process in one way, and it left the legislative process a month later, almost in the exact wording. Notwithstanding the fact that you had dozens of experts going and sitting at the admitty within the Knesset saying, this is too broad, this is too extreme, you need to limit it a bit. No, they haven't accepted any comment whatsoever. They only made the final wording even worse than it was. It's quite unbelievable. So they're rushing it through three and a half weeks through the Institutional Law and Justice Committee and finally enacting this law. As I mentioned, it is only the third time that basic law judiciary is amended. And this is the first time in our history where you have a constitutional amendment by the Knesset limiting court's jurisdiction. So this is taking the basic law on the justice system, taking that, toughening it up, and then passing it again in July. And then the Knesset comes and says, not only can they do it, we're going to give it more teeth. Exactly. So we can now appoint, we can appoint Day, we can appoint Benvir, even though he was convicted for assisting a terrorist yeah. organization. We can do any appointments of ministers and vice ministers and you, the court, you will not judge or supervise the reasonableness, yes or no, of our decisions. You don't have the accountability to this. Were you present at any of the committee sessions when Simcha Rotman, the religious Zionist, a member of Knesset, who chairs that very important committee, were you present at any of the hearings over which he presided on this issue? In this round, was not present. I didn't come even once this time. In the first round, I came times. But since I've realized that this is just a sham process and they just talk, but they don't really listen and nothing gets any attention or any visibility, the draft itself. So I said, okay, it's a waste of time for me. I want to legitimize this process. It doesn't really matter what I say. Uh, I simply, I do not go. And so just to liven things up for our listeners a bit, not that this isn't lively enough, but in the weeks leading up to this vote, the vote on this basic law actually took place on Monday, July 24th. And I remember very clearly because I was stuck on the road to Jerusalem to a doctor's appointment. But in the days preceding that actual vote, there had been for four or five days, it started as a group of 100 protesters in Tel Aviv, led by Shikma Bressler, who was one of the more prominent protest leaders. And it grew to tens of thousands. And it was this just moving ribbon of patriotism, of flags, of people who, it wasn't necessarily about I'm with the opposition. I'm with the government. It was more about we are tearing ourselves apart as a country and we have to find a better way to do this. And we're going to march to the Knesset and bring that message. That's my feeling. And that's how I read the civic response. But on this day, on Monday, July 24th, when the reasonableness law was passed, this was the kind of air. This was what was going on outside the Knesset. And it was quite surreal. It was also very peaceful. Inside the Knesset, though, the law went to the vote. Tell us what happened when it went to the vote. During that day, there were different last-minute attempts to try to reach to a more balanced formula. So there were 
all these kind of negotiations, maybe to pull back the law to the committee and try to mitigate or relax some of the provisions and have a more balanced formula, fully with the opposition, didn't succeed. It did not succeed. It simply said, we're going the way. And the final, in Israel, the second and third reading are together, same day. So the second reading, you just read it provision by provision. And the third reading is just overall law. And, and when the third reading arrived, the, all the opposition left the house and then it passed 64 versus zero. Uh, it was there outside of the Knesset. There were, as you say, hundreds of thousands watching on huge screens, this vote and shouting shame. And then there was a huge protest outside of the Knesset. Also spoke and I thought that it, I said it was a shame. The entire process was a shame. And it's a shame that they have adopted such an extreme version below while they could have reached a more balanced formula. Absolutely. And said, if I may jump in here, there were some quite unseemly photos that were taken in the Knesset chamber by members of the government smiling and backslapping and rejoicing, which we've all been there. I understand. Oh, wow, we won. This is great. But it has extracted such a price from the country on so many levels that it was just inappropriate for them to be like celebrating like they've won a football game. But there are much more serious, not more serious, but there are additional very serious implications. And those, of course, are economic. There's lots of fallout that transpired immediately after that vote. And that I've covered in other podcasts and other written pieces, so we won't get into it here. But it's not just about, we're focused today on the judicial system, the democratic system and the implications for that. But I want to flag to our listeners, you may want to take a look at some of the other material we've done to cover this because there are very significant implications for the country by every measure. Can you just sketch out briefly, what is this group? What are they taking to the court? On what basis? Who else is in the mix? To understand the Israeli system in a way, in Israel, unlike the US, every person has what we call standing before the High Court of Justice. Yeah, if I wake up in the morning and I read something I don't like, something that is, I think is unconstitutional, I can go direct to the High Court of Justice and submit a petition, High Court of Justice. And this is what happened in this case. Multiple NGOs and different organizations. First one was the Movement for Quality Government in Israel, as you mentioned. They were joined by other various human rights organizations. I've filed uh, petitions to the High Court of Justice challenging this amendment to the basic law. And as I've mentioned earlier, what is unique about this petition is that they're not petitioning against an ordinary law, but they're arguing that a certain constitutional law is unconstitutional, which might seem paradoxical to some people. And according to the Israeli jurisprudence thus far, there are mainly two limitations that are imposed on the Knesset when it enacts a basic law. The first one is what we call unconstitutional constitutional amendment, is that the Knesset cannot undermine the core values of the state as a Jewish and democratic, even when it enacts a basic law. Okay, so the basic argument here is that this law that undermines judicial independence, separation of powers and the rule of law is taking away or undermining core features of the state as a democratic state and accordingly it's unconstitutional. The second argument or the doctrine that limits the Knesset when it enacts basic law is misuse or abuse of basic law. Because the legislative process of basic laws is just like an ordinary law, all you need to do is to write in the title basic law, 
the court has developed in recent years this new doctrine of misuse of basic law. In other words, sometimes taking a law that is not supposed to be a constitutional norm and giving it the title basic law simply to shield it from judicial review would be abuse or misuse of basic laws. Here the argument is, look, basically you, the government, you're not happy with something. There are certain restrictions on your power. So you're simply removing that. That is acting bad faith. So the second argument is that you're abusing your constituent authority. And in the next hearing, what we'll have is all 15 judges of the court will sit for the first time in our history to hear these various petitions, perhaps deciding for the first time that a basic law is unconstitutional. And the support that they have was quite unique as well, because this was the first time in which the attorney general, in her response to the petitions, said that she supports the petitions and that this is indeed an unconstitutional basic law because the harm that it inflicts upon core democratic values. This moment in history is considered by many to be the most critical and existential in Israel's 75-year history. State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited-time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually, one year for only $60. Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. We are a reader-supported enterprise. If you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Stateoftelaviv.com, all one word. Now, back to the podcast. Take a moment, if you will, to comment on how Minister of Justice Yuriev Levine has reacted to the Attorney General's position. General officials from the coalition say that if the court will review this basic law, they will simply not comply with the decision because what they're saying, wait, you guys are telling us that the basic laws are constitutional laws. Constitution. How then you, you review the constitution itself? You cannot do it. Such a decision by the court will be, they say, illegal. But we will not comply with such a judicial decision. Now, this is totally mind-blowing because this means complete anarchy. If the government doesn't comply with court's decision, why would an ordinary citizen comply with the court's decision? This is unthinkable. Uh, now, the speaker of the Knesset, Ohana, recently said that not only they will not comply, but if the court strikes down a basic law, then all previous decisions made by the court that are based on the basic laws have no validity. Now, the reason personally I find this is crazy because- I missed that. That's really crazy. This is crazy. <laughs> not only that it's crazy, legally speaking, politically speaking, I still fail to see that if there will be a judgment by the Supreme Court, I don't know if the court will strike it down or not, even if there will be such a judgment, I fail to mm. see the government formally saying they will not abide by such a decision. This is unthinkable to my mind. And because the implications for such a, a, an actions are simply un unthinkable. Just imagine the relationship with the EU. These are central collaborator, commercially speaking, or the US. How can you then say, how can you tell the IE or other tribunals in the country, the world, sorry, that our judicial system is independent and at the same time say, we will not abide by court's decision. This is un this will be a disaster. It's madness. It's absolute madness. And 
even as a lever, as a kind of political play on the part of Ohana. Ohana didn't get up and do that spontaneously. Someone in Bibi's office, in the prime minister's office, said, we need you to make this comment. It's just so, in my view, again, I'll use the word unseemly, uh, for a person holding such high, important, dignified office to stand up and threaten the Supreme Court of Israel, that if you make this decision, we're not going to abide by it. This is not the kind of conduct we expect in a responsible democracy, right? Luckily for us, our Supreme Court is very independent. Yes. I don't think the court takes into consideration any of these statements. We always, or we tend to slip into talking about these as right-left issues. Oh, the government is on the right. The opposition is on the left. And I just want to close by saying, because I have a really hard time with that. And I want to hear your opinion. I don't see this as a right-left issue. I really don't. I see this. We definitely have a, elements in our government are very right-wing. Some are not right-wing. They're just downright extremist. And we have various kind of partisan sensibilities, in my view, in the opposition. Everything from hard left to center. A lot of former Likudniks among them. To me, this is more about the health and integrity of a properly functioning democracy than a right-left issue. How do you see it? I totally agree. I don't think that core democratic values or rights issues, for that matter, are a left or right-wing issue. The contrary, those Israeli government that ratified core human rights conventions enacted basic laws, the basic laws, two basic laws on human rights that called for judicial independence and even for the enactment of a constitution were right-wing governments. What we're seeing now is not a right-wing versus left-wing. No, you can see it also in the surveys. The vast majorities of Israel, from right or left, right. in total, oppose this storm. Recent survey, the majorities of them actually wanted now to go for elections. They said, forget about it. We don't want it. We, let's reshuffle everything. Let's go back to elections. We had enough of that. You're possibly going to be in the courtroom on the 12th of September. I hope you are because I'm absolutely going to be inviting you back onto State of Tel Aviv, Yaniv Rosnai, to fill us in on all the color, what went on, what didn't go on. And how long do you think we're going to have to wait after September 12th for a decision? That's a good question. The president of the court is retiring in middle of October. And traditionally, she has three months to write the judgment. I don't think it will be that long. But the only certain thing is that we will have a judgment until middle of January. Okay. That's for the Supreme Court. That's pretty good. Hopefully things will be expedited given the urgency of the situation. I learned so much every time I speak with you, Professor Yaniv Rosnai. Thank you so much for taking the time to explain these very complex issues and topics. And I know that our listeners will be very grateful and we'll have you back hopefully in a week or two to talk about what went down. It is hardly spoken in public here in Israel, but we need to remember that Netanyahu, until this law was unable to serve himself as a minister because he is now under a criminal trial. So he can be a prime minister, but paradoxically, he cannot be a minister, for example, minister of, I don't know, justice, obviously, but nor security or foreign affairs. But now he can appoint himself as a minister, which gives him much more powers vis-a-vis the other ministers. Very good point. And we know based on how Netanyahu has governed in the past, He does have a habit of accumulating ministerial portfolios. I think his record was five in addition to being the prime minister. So that's one point that we need to remember. The second point 
which is, I think, the most crucial one, is that it applies to all positions in government. The only serious check on appointments and removal of office is the reasonless doctrine. So if tomorrow the government wants to remove from office the attorney general, they would have to show, of course, that they have, they need to convene a committee, never mind. But assume the committee says, we do not recommend to remove her from office. And nonetheless, the government fires her without reasonableness. There's not much you can do. But if you have reasonableness as a tool, you can tell the government, wait, you haven't given enough considerations to the recommendation of that committee. And therefore, right. we say that this removal of office is illegal. And this could apply to basically all legal advisors or all major office holders in the executive. So reasonableness is the main tool that allows us to maintain independent gatekeepers, if you like. And the other side of the coin is that the government is anxious to get rid of reasonableness because they want to capture many of the state institutions and gatekeeper position. The theory of parliamentary democracy and having a professional public service is that they have institutional memory and they have independence and they push back. And if they feel the government is making a serious legal mistake or error, that they have the ability to push back and say so without a fear of losing their job or whatever the consequence may be. And so they are the true protectors of the state. Exactly. We also need to remember this, the importance of independent gatekeepers against the backdrop of Israeli already relatively weak constitutional order and relatively weak mechanisms of checks and balances. Because unlike Canada or the US, we have no rigid constitution or rigid bill of rights. We don't have a federal system where you have a vertical separation of powers. We have no two chambers in parliament or two houses in parliament. So basically the entire power is centered in the executive in the Israeli case that controls the legislator. So the only checks on political powers or real checks are the judiciary and the attorney general. And these are precisely the two organs that this reform was aimed to weaken. Now that we have the backdrop explained, we will go to Monday, July 24th, the day on which the amendment to the basic law of the judiciary was passed by the Knesset. So that's basic law, the judiciary. This is an old basic law from the 1980s that actually regulate the authority of the court and the entire judicial system in a way. And the amendment that was passed in July is only the third amendment to that basic law. So this was an amendment to basic law of the judiciary. And the amendment is a very short amendment. It says basically that no court can review the decisions of the cabinet or the ministers for their reasonableness. And the law also adds, just to be clear on that point, that it also applies on appointment. Finally, it adds another sentence. The decisions also include decisions not exercise authority by law, which is insane because basically what it means that if now the Knesset law and you, Vivian, are the minister and you don't like that law, you can simply not exercise your authority according to the law. And if I then challenge your inaction in courts, the court cannot review the reasonableness of your inaction, which is very disturbing. And tomorrow, on Tuesday, September 12th, the petition asking the Supreme Court of Israel to overturn the amendment to the basic law of the judiciary will be heard. 
We're going into this hearing on Tuesday, September 12th. Hopefully you will be in the courtroom so I can get you to tell me what went down. Um, in addition to some others I'm speaking with, we have this momentous hearing on September 12th. And we are in a position where now Minister Gallant and one or two other ministers in the government have said we must abide by Supreme Court decisions. We have the Mossad, the Shin Bet, and the IDF saying we will abide by the law. And we have the government, coalition government, saying if the Supreme Court strikes down the basic law amendment made by us, to the basic law and justice, the reasonableness law, if the Supreme Court strikes that down or varies it in any way, we will not abide by their ruling. That's the scenario we have going in, correct? Yes. Pretty stark. It's extremely frustrating because the government tells you, if the court will strike down a basic law, this means complete anarchy, which is a twisted logic. Because it's just the opposite. When the government is saying that they will not abide by court's ruling, that's the anarchy. If the government is not complying with, why would ordinary citizens comply with court's rulings? So this is extremely, extremely troubling. And that's the way it is on Monday, September 11, 2023. As Chief Justice Esther Hayut resigns very soon from the bench, we know that at the outside, the decision must be rendered by mid-January, latest. But in light of the importance of some degree of certainty and, optimally, resolution to this crisis, an urgency of which the judges are very aware, we can expect a decision on an expedited basis. It's important to note as well that the court may strike down the law, it may uphold it, it may critique particular aspects of it, and send it back to the Knesset for fine-tuning. At least, that's how things are intended to function. But in Israel, we have a government that has already declared it will not adhere to any ruling that purports to modify the law as passed in any way. If nothing else, this absolute fiasco is a case study in how not to manage institutional change in a democracy. Consensus may be tiresome, but doing so by fiat absolutely pulverizes social cohesion, as we are seeing today in Israel. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. It would be great if you would like and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. Check us out at stateoftelaviv.com on Substack, where you will have access to our full library of content for a limited time only. We are truly independent. We don't just say it, meaning that you will be exposed to views from across the political spectrum at stateoftelaviv.com. Me? I'm all over the place, but generally a solid centrist. State of Tel Aviv is supported by its listeners and readers. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber. Each member makes a huge difference. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv.